content warning. This episode contains body horror, burning buildings, possession, and gunfire. Hey everyone, uh, I just thought I'd pop in before the episode starts to just let everyone know what's going on. Sorry about the massive gap between episodes. I've just gone to uni to do sound art. So there's going to be a much larger gap between episodes uh, from this point forward. Uh, I'm going to try and make it as small as possible, but you know I've got a lot of work going on at the moment and um, just in general outside of uni as well, a lot of extracurricular stuff. So I'm really sorry about that. In other news, I've also joined the Faustian Nonsense Network. I've got some amazing shows that I'm alongside, some really amazing people working on some amazing things. It's amazing is what I'm trying to get across. Um, go and check out some of their stuff. There's a link in the uh, show notes to the website, so you can just see what, uh, so you can see what kind of things uh, they're up to. But I'm very happy to be a part of it. I'm very hopeful for the direction it's going to be going, um, and uh, hopefully, it's only going to make the podcast a lot better. And without further ado, I will go ahead and let you listen to the episode. Iacra wakes up from their nightmare, not with a start, not in a cold sweat. Their eyes simply open, and they slowly reflect on the images in their mind. These images slowly return like a rock sinking into sludge, slow and encapsulating. They stood in a great savanna, like those of Aristophsis. A great dust storm raged around them, and through the swaths of rageful grains, a great shadow approached. Taller than Iacra, it looked down upon them and held out a long, pale hand in stark contrast to their deep violet skin. As the hand descended to them, its aura followed in canon, all colors of the spectrum. They stood unblinking as the sands of the impending storm closed in, whipping dust into their watering black and yellow eyes, threatening to destroy their entire being. Their questions stood asked, but unsaid. The spindly creature leaned in, its head the size of Iacra's whole body. With a viciously kind smile full of teeth, the shadow spoke. I offer salvation. The festivities from the night before only just began to wind down outside. It's not often a god manifests on a planet, and especially one so close to the capital system, and it was always said about their culture that any excuse for a party was a good excuse. It didn't matter if they had ever actually worshipped that god before. As they lie in their soft hammock suspended from the ceiling, Iacra feels strange, like a physical deja vu. A repeating thrum of four beats descends upon their body. The discomfort caused by the recognition for something they know they have never seen is overtaken only by the immense pain they begin to feel as their body begins to change. The stench of burning construction plastic fills the air. There are other materials ablaze, I'm sure, but it's the buildings that create the strongest stench. A set of drones hover around a row of older-looking houses, Victorian in design, with visible supports and heavily reliant on fabric for decoration and insulation. I think about how the tapestries inside that line the walls will be nothing more than ash and smoke now and find it deeply upsetting. The drones fill them with a flame suppressant which douses the intense crimson fire almost instantly, and just as soon as the fire has died, the foam begins to evaporate. 
In a wide open green space filled with plants from Aristophysis for homesick colonists, I spot a large domed tent set up within the park, the outside of which is held up by a skeleton of metal poles which crisscross around it. Far off in the distance, the city blazes on. The anti-fire drones clearly not designed with the anticipation of this kind of disaster in mind. There's a laughable misconception I've noticed in recent years that, because the end goal of the council is unified utopia, we should start behaving like we're there already. As if the universe stops being violent and dangerous simply because we will it to be. Which, evidently, is untrue. I approach the large tent. Groups of Viatorians huddle around outside, presumably the ones that need less care and attention, minor cuts and bruises. They dress in Winonian festival garments, loose-fitting, colourful cloth draped over shoulders and waists. The masks hang loose around their necks, though. I've seen these patterns and clothes used in festivals over hundreds of years. They never change. A stunning dedication to tradition. They stand and watch the city burn behind me, engrossed in watching the smoke rise from their blazing city. My heart yearns for them. To have one's home be destroyed in front of their very eyes is a special kind of pain. One of them says something in Wenon and a few laugh. The ones that don't speak it smile anyway, latching onto any amount of camaraderie in the face of disaster. As I draw close, an Adrolite, a member of the Viatorian community militia, dressed in their characteristic sleek black armour, exits the tent. I bristle at the sight of it, memories of the deep corruption and violence from Forest Minor flood back to me. They wear a helmet that rests over their head, allowing a full view of their face. From the forehead, a small crescent shape arcs upward unevenly. The Adrolite motions to one of the Viatorians to come inside with familial informality. But then he spots me, and the kindness drops from his face and is replaced by a fearful malice. He takes a sleek, scoped folding bow from his hip and readies it. He shouts in Viatorian. Lord Rallus, a demon approaches. He readies an arrow and pulls back his bowstring. The huddles of Viatorians look at me with fear and start to gather behind him. I hold up my hands in a sign of deference, and my mind races through my knowledge of Viatorian standard. Uh, no harm, no demon. Um, small baby, little child. The Adrolite looks at me, slightly confused. The words for innocence are linked heavily with the words for child. Ah, oh, shit, um, counsel, I say, pointing to myself. Another Adrolite leaves the medical tent, missing the helmet but wearing a deep blue, short shoulder cape on her left side, sidearm already readied. She takes a few moments to assess the situation before placing a hand on the bowman's tensed arm. Calm yourself, Faunus, but remain wary. Faunus lowers the bow but does not remove the arrow from the notch, but continues to eye the threat of the unfired arrow. Adam, she says in human. Interesting how quickly you invoke the name of the council. You realize that you're no longer offered the protections usually provided to you? In my defense, I didn't really have a lot of say in the matter. Why are you here? Why now of all times? I, uh... Epicurosa sent me, I say, for the second time to something threatening me with violence. To hunt down a Vignadal. The name moves something inside of Lanralis. It's interesting to witness it from the outside. I know the feeling. I've not really had the opportunity to actually watch it in detail. Something in their eyes changes and their demeanour shifts ever so slightly. I'd incorrectly assumed that it was just humans who had that feeling of intense recognition. It would seem the descendants of all those who joined me all that time back in Eden feel the same discomfort. And the number of beings whose lives I have affected has, all in one moment, tripled. Hey, What is that? How much has the Council told you about the current disaster? <sighs> Something, some sort of demon. Maybe even a god. It wreaks havoc on our territories. It's already destroyed a few settlements, ruined a few uninhabited planets. Darjameen, Saketh, Ingwilson, a few others. She gestures to the smoldering suburbs around us. This 
is the first Viatorian territory to be affected. And it's only now the Viatorian branch of the council are actually doing anything. I say, making the gamble that this officer isn't an Aristos' hand sympathizer, or indeed even a member. Her face doesn't change, but she signals to Faunus. He folds up his bow and goes back inside the tent. Avignadal is not a demon, nor a god. He is from beyond, and ultimately wants to remove restrictions, to revert things. To what, I'm not sure. There's a lot of supposition and comparison involved that muddies the water, but without metaphor and myth, I imagine I'd be nowhere close to understanding. And that is what has destroyed this city? It must be. Last I knew, he was battling with the gods. Um, Aratho? Yes, it was him they were celebrating. She looks back at the festival goers, not with the kind of compassion I would expect from a member of the community. Normally, I wouldn't be able to help you out. I'm sure you know how that works. You've been working for the council for longer than me, my mother, or my mother's mother. No stragglers. They're still on that, then. Who's going to resist? You'd be surprised, I say, half to myself. She approaches me. She's on the shorter side of the Victorians, maybe six, five, six, seven. Her arms bulge slightly through her combat mold. She seems as if she could snap me in half. She also looks drained, like the energy has been pulled from her all at once. What I can do... She begins. ...is temporarily make you a chore. A look of puzzlement covers my face. Can an Agilite induct an assistant Thane? You're on different hierarchies. What makes you think I'm not a Thane? She pushes her shoulder cape aside to present the ancient symbol of the Council of Limonia in the form of a yellow holographic seal affixed to her combat mold, which flickers on with a tap. It's an insignia whose origins are unknown even to me. It's not to say I don't know it well. Unfortunately, I'm all too familiar with the five symbols contained within a circle of quick dashes and that strange picture in the center. I'd always likened it to an old olive tree of some kind. Oh. I was working here as a joint sheriff Adrolite role, investigating some organized crime syndicate. I'm sure you can imagine that it's taking a bit of a hiatus. I can spare maybe two officers to assist you. She taps the side of the Vigilink embedded into her head. A small ring of white light appears around her iris. Nicely hidden, I comment. She politely but dismissively nods her head and switches back to Viatorian. I concentrate and try to follow along. With the threat of an arrow between my eyes less present, I find my knowledge of Viatorian standard a lot more plentiful. Faunus, Ikrinth, finish up what you're doing and join me out here. Yes, understood. She turns back to me. Turns out we need some extra help over here. Might not be able to help you out for now. I can go on my own, I start. Actually, what he's doing? How urgently do you pursue? She goes to say the name of Avignadal, but cannot seem to bring herself to do it. That... thing. Once I had told Epicurosa about where he intended to go, it was the first time I had ever seen a god feel fear. The thing sort of stops. As if the information that God feels fear towards a thing currently still at large is too much to take on, and she simply stands there, a stark look of concern on her face, shocked into stillness. I wave a hand in front of her. Hey, hey, it's okay. Just focus on the here and now. Tell me what needs doing. She meets my eyes. There's a public supply vault, maybe one, one and a half kilometers down the path. Just get down there, put the switch. The drones will do the rest. We would do it remotely, but the lowest for the area is down, so at least a day or two before we get the replacement in. A low-orbit relay station is essential for planetary communication. Planets without them are such a nightmare to work in. It feels like you've been sent back a thousand years, relying on radio signals and wired transmissions. Once you've done that, come back here and I'll send you on your way with the officers. I nod and she turns back to the tent. Actually, I say, and she stops and faces me. For the first time in a very long time, I ask... 
Are you alright? I'm unsure if I say it with enough visible empathy, and in that moment between my asking and her answer, I feel as if I had made some terrible, irreversible mistake, as if my foray into trying to communicate with mortals to join the continent has resulted in some terrible offence that I did not consider. But instead of spitting on the ground with a look of disgust on her face, she smiles. There's a certain exhaustion there, a level of shock and existential fear, but she smiles. I'm fine, she says, quick and short. Oh, right, okay, good, that's good. I'll, um, go flip that switch then. Evidently, what was a monumental step forward for me was nothing to her. It did not carry the same weight, coming off as mere small talk. She holds up a hand sign, the equivalent of a thumbs up, and turns around again. I take a deep breath and head in the direction of the public supply vault. Not all of the houses had been raised. Some seemed to have been destroyed directly, as if smashed by some petulant child. I passed a human-style restaurant. Anthony Hyde's authentic human cuisine, the banner says in Viatorian, draped over a pile of rubble. Seeing a food establishment immediately makes me think of the last time I ate. On the Barakiel, the Anthronesians provided some pink slop dissolved in water. Not exactly the most filling meal. I make a note to myself to go somewhere nice when this is all done. It'd be a buffet. I reach a large warehouse of some kind with several hatches and mechanical doors built into the ground. It has no walls, a small, inward-sloping fence rings the perimeter, and a curved, smooth roof sits over the whole thing. Various banners and insignia hang from the support beams, and I put my hand up to brush my fingers against the soft fabric, allowing myself a moment to enjoy the patterns and colours, each so vibrant and enchanting. But then something growls behind me, unnatural and tortured, ruining the moment. I turn, and I'm met with a horrific sight. A figure stands at the entrance to the supply vault, silhouetted by the city in Inferno. I recognise it, or something akin to it at least, from the team that boarded the Gorlam. Whatever it was that became of Ayak Tubalcane bears a strong resemblance to this thing before me now. The flesh has grown over their eyes, which can be seen faintly darting back and forth in some sign of panic. Their mouth is filled with sharp teeth that have pushed the previous ones aside as they burst violently from the gums. There are obvious signs of rapid growth of the flesh and bone. The skin, however, has not grown with it and is pulled taut across its frame. The deep violet gone pale. It takes a step forward and stumbles, breaking its fall with its long, bloody claws. I draw my gun and its face twitches, some remnant of the person it used to be recognising a weapon when it sees it. It forces out a grunt, and a viscous mix of blood and saliva drips from its crowded mouth. In my mind, I try desperately to forget the fact that this was once a person as I cock the firearm. I do so, and it charges, half running on all fours. Almost instantly, it closes the distance that is on top of me, digging its long, slender claws up into my ribs. I expect it to bite at my neck with its many teeth, but it instead holds in place and shivers. This poor, tortured creature, pulled out of a person, unable to cope with its new form, both physically and with whatever mental faculties it may still possess. My empathy, though, ends where my self-preservation begins, and I pull the trigger, unleashing a barrage of rounds directly into its chest. It growls and removes a clawed hand in order to swing down at my face. I grab its wrist and pull it out and away. It falls down closer to me. Our chests touch and I feel the vibrations of its laboured breaths in my body. The sensation makes me feel terribly uncomfortable, sick almost. To an outside observer, it would probably seem as if it were just laying down on top of me, holding my hand out. The struggle for dominance in this battle is still but tense. I finally feel it weaken and push it up and off of me, scrambling to my feet. It bleeds a deep purple, unoxygenated Viatorian blood. This thing derives energy from somewhere, perhaps from its liberator. I remind myself that it is born of something that does not adhere to universal laws, at least not fully. 
it collapses to the ground, finally succumbing to its wounds. And with its last moments, it uses its now useless blood to draw a Vignadal's mimetic symbol on the ground. I walk over and use the tip of my boot to smudge it. I won't allow it to spread, whatever strange mutation he causes in our descendants. There's a terminal screen. I find the park on the map and send a first aid and natural disaster package. Before I confirm the order, I also had a cache of weapons. There surely must be more of those beasts. In a city of this size, I can't imagine only one person succumbed to his influence. A pair of heavy-duty mechanical doors open, and from the floor, a pallet of crates rises up on a platform as a drone roars into life. It attaches itself to the crates, and the platform shifts out from under the roof. The drone begins to rise, and I briefly consider hitching a ride. However, I doubt this system was designed with such a consideration in mind. I'm not sure I can explain to Thane Lanvalis why her supplies never made it to the relief tent. The drone begins to hover along with the street, and I follow it. The floor is a smooth, hard concrete. The small paper charms that had managed to escape the blaze lay scattered about, folded into stars and swirls. Traditionally, they would be done by hand, but on such short notice, as was often the case with the arrival of a god, she made would have to do. Me and the drone arrive back at the camp, and Thane Lanvalis stands by the tent entrance, addressing two Adrolites presumably Faunus and Ikrinth. Just ahead of me, the drone lowers down and deposits the crates next to them. They turn as it begins to rise and fly back to the supply vault. They start to unload the supplies, putting the weapons to one side and carrying the rest through to the medical tent. And Rallis nods a thank you at me and notices my wounds. You managed to find trouble, I see. What happened there? Something attacked me. Long, sharp claws. I gestured to the red spots in my shirt and have slowly been growing, merging with each other. Loving the doll, this thing, has the tendency to corrupt those around him. They mutate and change in strange ways. Exposure to him is like a metaphysical radiation poisoning. These creatures are born of ordinary citizens who became infected by his nature. Lanralis looks behind her and ushers me further away from the tent. You must not, under any circumstances, make anyone aware of that. If we're going to have to put down these... things then I would rather they remain alien. For their own good, right? I'm glad you understand. I understand, but I don't agree. So what do you suggest? We let dread soak the population? Panicked civilians are dangerous, and not something I want to deal with. But they're your people. Exactly. They're just people. I don't want them to become an obstacle. But if they come to you when... (sighs) My words falter. A fresh wave of pain sinks into my wounds. I'd love to continue this discourse, but can I get some medical aid? Oh. She looks at the wounds in my stomach. Not so unreachable, then, eh? She takes my arm and guides me towards the tent. Unreachable? It's one of the Vaitorian epithets for you. Did you not know? Adam who cannot be reached. It's a bit smoother in the original language. More to do with being infallible. We enter the tent, which is lined with seven diagonal pods. Within each lies a very damaged Vaitorian. I glance at one as we pass. A white cloud buzzes around its inhabitant and settles on a burn that flicks up from his chest, along his neck and over his left eye. The white cloud solidifies into a sort of gel that undulates around his wound. I look to Are those nanobots? When was the last time you were in a central system? Maybe a hundred, hundred and fifty years ago? A lot of the time the council gives, or brother gave, my missions remotely. Yes, well, this close to Palaf, we really feel the benefits of Nimenean representation. I mean, the technology is so good that medics are more like technicians. They go over to the bench to take a seat. A visor medic comes over and brushes past Lanralis. Do you need a cover, or are you all good? 
I'm good. Most of the weirdness is situated around the facial area. Everyone's made their judgments. They say gesturing to the horns, eyes, and face markings. We're going to need to get him some new clothes. Morales says to the medic. She stands and watches him work, arms crossed. I doubt we've got anything in human sizes. He replies. A tunic will do. Just something so the combat mold doesn't change. I don't change. need combat mold. The medic and the thane both look at me and say in unison. Yes, yes you, do. you do. Arms. I take off my bandolier, raise my hands above my head, and the medic slices through my bloody stained and ripped shirt. He then removes the bandages which cover the wounds given to me by the roller. I'm not sending you out there with two of my officers if it's this easy to bring you down. The medic takes an oval container and hovers it over each of my wounds, moving from one wound to another each time it clicks. Why aren't you wearing combat mold in the first place? I'm not a soldier. Neither am I. I'm not counsel. You were, though. Why so averse to being labelled as one of us? But it's all temporary, isn't it? There's all this puffing up of chests about how the Council helps people, how the lives of civilizations have been forever improved by the gracious hand of Mimenea. They always fail to mention the abandoned colonies, out on the outskirts where new technologies will take a century to arrive. The population crises when families are ripped from their homes and placed into settlements light years away in a culture they don't recognize and with no help. And that's just what's happening now. I've witnessed thousands of years of this. Eventually it will die away and the universe will be no different. The same problems people faced thousands of years ago will remain consistent. But people's lives have been changed by the Council. Where would the humans be without them? They certainly would not be in the situation they are now. Would you rather we all stick to our own planets, look after our own and no one else? I am not so naive as to think that the Council is not without its imperfections, but... The medic enters some numbers into the container and a white cloud of nanobots bursts forth like steam. He quickly slows down and settles around my wounds. A brace for the sting, but instead all I feel is a slight cold as it settles into a gel. Stitching flesh together, eliminating bacteria and foreign substances. I assume. I have no real inclination as to how it actually works. They at least try. Do the lives they have benefited count for nothing against those they have failed? Does lack of permanence upset you? Do people like me, who without the thanes would be nothing not matter in the grand scheme of things because the changes in our lives don't affect the state of the universe. As she says Thanes, the medic jolts slightly. Anralis realizes her mistake and goes to say something, but the medic says, I am a vessel of a healing embrace of Sofdemni. See that it stays that way. The white gel returns once more to the gaseous state and returns to its container. The medic stands and leaves. I'll fetch some clothing. Anralis watches him go and breathes a deep sigh. I lied earlier, Adam. I'm not okay. I'm extremely fucking not okay. But to myself, I am a Thane. Thanes are the edge of the Council's blade, so they don't get to feel not okay. To them... She points at the civilians in the tent. I am a chief Adralite. They look to me for support. So what am I, a mere mortal, supposed to do when something runs rampant through my city that makes a god's face turn pale with fear? I understand that we're just blips in your endless story, but... She catches herself, a lump forming in her throat. I don't see you as blips. You're all far more than that to me. I do feel separate, and I want to change that. I've seen far too much harm in my time, and it slowly became easier to frame myself as separate to avoid the pain, which was not always successful. But I promise you, I will do everything in my power to stop Avignadal, and I'll do so because I care. I look into her eyes and hope that I provided at least some sense of comfort to her. I think I did, but I am frustratingly unable to read people. 
I stand and we both leave for the exit. The medic hands me an undershirt, meant to be close fitting, but it hangs loose off of my frame once I get it over my head. Lenralis looks at me with a slight smirk. The combat mold will add some shape. A smile back. Yes, let's hope. We walk a few more paces. Unreachable, I say. Sorry. Lenralis says, leaning in to hear me better. Oh, nothing. Sorry. Outside, Faunus and Ikrinth lean against some crates, sharing a small portable hookah, blowing smoke into the air. Ikrinth notices me and Lanralis, and they quickly scramble to extinguish the small flame and look active. She commands them in Viatorian. Grab a combat mold. Faunus, you're staying here in my stead. I will escort Adam myself. Are you sure? I ask, but quickly understand why. Better a thane to hunt a god than an Adrolite. I need to have my part in the retribution you have promised me. Ikrinth, a tall and lanky Viatorian with a completely shaved head and sharp, defined cheekbones, places the combat mold on me and does a few things on the back that I can't see. It starts to shrink around my form and stops once it reaches a certain tightness. It covers my torso, arms, and a portion of my neck. I slip my bandolier over my head and place it over my chest again. More comfortable than the last time I wore one, though we were under vastly different circumstances. And Rallis gestures to my submachine gun. Interesting make. Not sure we'll have the caliber, though. It's fine. I've got no particular attachment to it, really. I'll take any weapon you've got. She hands me a long rifle, cheap and easy to maintain. It's made from maybe three major parts, which can be easily removed and replaced. It's simple and clunky. Are we all good to go? Lanralis asks. Ikrith nods, slinging their machine gun over their shoulder. Let's go, then. And so we head onward, towards the city centre. Flanked by an Adrolite and a Thane, I go on in search of a Vignadal. Narration by Anna Godfrey, Avig Nadal, played by Glyn Pritchard. Faunus, played by Maxim Ilienko Jarvis. Lanralis, played by Kayla Valderas. Ovig Child, played by Samuel Alejandro Di Fuentes. Medic, played by Maximilian John. Sound design, writing, and Adam Delta 5 by Kai Gwillem Pritchard. An extra special thanks to our patrons, Teresa Scheiben, Anthony Hyde, and Zachary Fortis-Gom. Email us at chainofbeingofficial at gmail.com for inquiries and stuff. Follow the podcast on Twitter at chainofbeing. We are a proud member of the Faustian Nonsense Network. Thanks for listening. Scryer, far have I travelled to seek your counsel. Across land, sea and sky, I suffered blistering heat and broken bones to hear thine words. Please, I beseech thee, lend me your wisdom. How shall I become a great leader? Well, Little Business Library is an online directory of small businesses. It differs from other selling websites as it allows consumers to shop directly from the small businesses website. And because all the transactions happen on the small businesses websites, Little Business Library is not involved in the checkout process at all, meaning they never charge sales fees. Instead, taking a small percentage of every sale. Small business owners pay Little Business Library $4 a month after a 30-day free trial, and in doing so, can get an average of 106 clicks per week. Both product and service businesses are welcome. Use coupon code LISTEN10 at checkout. What? I have spoken.